Thanks so much for uh, being here with us uh, this morning. If you've been here at Christ Covenant very long, uh, at least the last two years, you will note that it is this service that we have traditionally done up on the stage. I don't know if you remember that. You remember that last year? For those of you here, we did this on the stage. We've kind of outgrown the stage, and last year I was a little worried that we might collapse the stage. You know, Dees, he's always in for a good adventure and a good time. I'm worried about, like, load maxes and such up here. So, uh, sorry, you're, you're in your typical seats today, but thank you uh, for being here. Just a few, like, housekeeping things. Uh, I'm the housekeeping guy, I feel like, a lot of times. And uh, just wanted to make mention of a couple of things. Just to follow up on Jason Byers' great plug for uh, end of year, or I'm sorry, end of year, start of new year Bible reading plan. These rhythms guides, I believe, are a special tool for our church. Okay? Our pastors, we put a lot of time and thought into the things that we believe are helpful for our congregation uh, as we shepherd throughout each quarter of every year. And what we do is we go in and we plan out our sermon series based on how we prayerfully, prayerfully believe the Lord is leading us to, to shepherd and what to preach here. And uh, in, in addition to determining those series, we, we scowl the Bible and, and we pull together a host of, of scriptures that surround each text and each sermon so that you can come into the service prepared to hear uh, the word. And so I just want to like plug this again and just say, hey, if you've not been a Rhythms user in 2019, make 2020 the year. Uh, we'll be coming out with our new ones um, here at the turn of the new year. I think we'll probably have them on January 5th. Uh, but this is, a, this is a helpful tool just to kind of show you what this looks like. Today's December 29th. Today our sermon is Count the Cost. We've got the text in there. We've got all the surrounding passages in there. And uh, my hope is that you would read this before you come, that you would treat um, our corporate worship time together more like game day than practice. You practice at home in the week and you show up with game day for game day prepared and ready. I see Austin with his Clemson shirt on. He, he resonates with game day uh, today. Just another thing, um, it, it is a busy time of year and just a big shout out to our volunteers. I know our parking team's been killing it down here led by Joel Hem. And if you're, by, uh, by yeah, but Joel Hem, y'all can clap it up for him. And then, uh, and if, if you're a member of Christ Covenant and you're looking for an area to serve, we would love to get you plugged in. Come find me. I'd love to, love to help you uh, do that. And then finally, um, I, I am one of the pastors here. Uh, we've got a handful of elders. I think, what, 11, 12 elders now. Um, our main preaching pastor, he's actually in the kids' area this morning. And so he was not going to be in town, but as you know, Jason Dees is. He's always up for a change of plans and a good time. And so he got invited to the football game last night, drove back to Atlanta, couldn't be away from us, and so we put him in the kids' area to serve. And so uh, he, we're grateful for him that he uh, is serving down there today. Count the cost. Our, our text today is going to be Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. And so you can go ahead and flip in your Bible there. We'll have it up on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you. And we also have Bibles in the back. If uh, We'd be happy for you to take one if, if you don't have access to a Bible. Uh, but count the cost. There's been, there's been a handful of different instances um, where counting the cost uh, hits the public news. Or a lack thereof. A lack of counting the costs hit the public news. Um, and there, there's a very popular case that's going on right now. It, it's popular because of the tragedy surrounding it and the seeming neglect surrounding um, the tragedy. But you'll be familiar with it. On October of last year, 2018, Lion Air Flight 610 crashed just minutes after taking off from Jakarta, Indonesia. And all 189 people on board 
were killed. And then in March of this, of this year, 2019, another uh, Boeing Air Max, Ethiopia Airlines Flight 302, crashed just a few minutes after takeoff. And all, almost 160 people on board uh, were killed. In, in response to this, all Air Max, Air Max, uh, that's a shoe. Uh, I'm a basketball guy. But uh, all Boeing uh, Max, you know, 737 jets have been grounded uh, all across the world. And that, that grounding of those planes still goes on to, to this day. Well, the black box data um, that has been gathered from those planes that crash showed that there's a new system that was introduced for these particular uh, airliners um, that, that was flawed. And I'm no uh, aeronautics specialist, nor am I an engineer, uh, but apparently due to um, how they positioned the engine on these new planes a little more forward, there was a, Jim, you like that? There was a, there was a propensity for these things to, for their nose to get higher than it ought. It would ascend faster than it ought, and it had this little correction mechanism on it called an MCAS uh, device. Well, uh, this device on these two planes failed, and, and the role of this device was that if the nose got too high, it would correct it and help level it out. Well, unfortunately, as you know, they failed, and both of these airliners uh, plummeted uh, directly to the ground. Well, there's been a lot of research and a lot of investigation uh, that has gone on and continues to go on, go on with, this, with this case. Uh, but one senior engineer at Boeing said to the company that to keep costs down, that the company rejected a safety system that could have reduced the risks that contributed to these two deadly crashes. According to an internal complaint uh, that was received this past year. This is a very tragic story um, with almost 400 people affected. Um, lives lost that resulted because the cows the cost was not counted properly. Jesus has for us a passage today that's tough to hear. It's tough to discern, especially at face value. But what Jesus wants you to do and what he wants me to do, what he wants all of his disciples to do, is to count the cost. Count the cost of the faith. And I think at the end of a year and going into a new year, this is a great time for you to consider this as well. Wherever you are in your discipleship journey, maybe you're confused, like Matt prayed earlier about where you are. Maybe you are confident and 2019 was great. There are still great steps that Jesus would encourage you towards as we collectively, corporately count the cost of the faith together. And so I'm going to pray for us and then we'll jump right into uh, our text. Father, I pray that you would give me the words that you'd have us here that we need. Um, Father, I pray that I would not preach this text more prophetically than, um, than it allows, but certainly not less prophetically than it demands. And Lord, I pray that, um, that all will be encouraged in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 14, 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, 
all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first to deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so this morning, I want us to look at a few things in this text. The first thing I want us to look at is the who. Who is Jesus talking to in this text? The second thing I want us to look at is the what. What is Jesus actually saying uh, in this text? And then thirdly, I want us to look at why. Why is Jesus having to say these things to this crowd and to this crowd? And so the who, the what, and the why uh, of this passage is important. So who is Jesus speaking to? Well, verse 25 makes it clear. It says this, now a great crowd accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. You might remember that crowds actually play a massive role in the whole development of the Gospels. Much of what the Gospel writers write to us, record for us, happens in front of a crowd or with the crowds. So it plays, a, it plays a big role. And you also might note that Jesus, with Jesus, the crowd shifted over time, right? Whenever Jesus comes onto the scene early in Luke, there is no crowd. But in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, he does something. He goes and he preaches in a synagogue, and then everybody's intrigued. All who could hear were intrigued, and so there was a crowd. And it would be this crowd that would kind of follow him that would become the center of his ministry. Sometimes you find Jesus going to the crowd, or going up onto a rock to speak to the crowd. Sometimes you see Jesus retreating away from the crowd. But this crowd is an important piece and component in the whole narrative of um, the New Testament Gospels. And and it's important for us to consider. Needless to say, there was a group uh, that early in Jesus' ministry wasn't there. They heard about Jesus. They saw the works of Jesus. And this crowd continued to grow and to grow and to grow. But as Jesus' ministry moves towards a cross, and when he's there on the cross, there's actually only a few left. The crowd that was intrigued by him, that was fascinated by his miracles, that was fascinated by the words that came out of his mouth, whenever he went to the bloody cross, had left. And I think it's very easy for us at times to depersonalize this crowd. But these are real people, right? And they're real people that we know something about. Okay. Earlier in, in Luke chapter 14, uh, Jesus is with a group of Pharisees. He's with the Pharisees and the lawyers, and he ends up healing a man on the Sabbath. And then he goes into the story about whether or not they would, they would pick up their donkey or their son out of a well uh, if it was on the Sabbath, and he confronts them. So we can assume that the Pharisees are here. They're here because they were just here. Jesus was just with them. They're here because they're present in the crowd all throughout Uh, the narrative. These were the people who were attracted to Jesus because they wanted to listen to him in such a way that they could trap him. They weren't interested in worshiping him. They were only interested in using the, the words of Jesus to validate themselves before God. The main flaw of the Pharisees, you might remember, is that they uh, were legalist at heart. They could not see their need for Jesus because they looked to the law for their own standing before God. That was their main flaw. And so, uh, 
you know, they, they a lot of times get painted as the, um, the bad guys in the New Testament. But I want to submit to you that, like, I, I kind of have a Pharisee within me. I like to look to the law, look to my own good works at times for my right standing with Jesus. We all have a tendency there. And so if that's you in the room, Jesus is speaking to you today. He's speaking to me today. That was their main flaw. There's also another group of people here. They're the crowd followers, right? These are the people that were curious about Jesus, but they were only really curious about Jesus because there was a crowd that was curious about Jesus, right? These are the groupies. There's a couple kinds of groupies, I think. Um, not too long ago, me and another elder in our church got to go up to Buffalo, okay? We've got a member of our church you may or may not know. He, he's a long snapper for the Buffalo Bills. His name's Reed Ferguson, great guy. He had us up and hosted us for uh, a game. And, and part of the kind of the deal was that he got us these, these um, sideline passes. Aren't you envious? No, I'm teasing. Uh, he got us these sideline passes. So we got to go on the field before the game and everything. And, like, we know Reed. We had just hung out with him. We just watched a Florida-Georgia game with him the night before. We, sp- we spent a bunch of time with him. We really personally know him. I've hung out with him otherwise. I've worked out with him. I know this guy. And we were on the field pregame warm-up. We were just kind of coldly standing there. We know the guy. Watching him, just kind of, I, I was just very fascinated by all the different moving pieces and parts. So you had us there. But then you had, like, the groupies, right? And I hate, you know, I hate to say this, but a lot of them were just girls. And, like, they were just screaming at these football players. I'm like, ladies, listen, like, these guys, they're trying to warm up, get ready for a football game. Like, they ain't worried about you. But these girls over there, they're, like, screaming. They're seriously trying to take selfies with the players during warm-ups, okay? This is, this is, these are some groupies, right? And what is their purpose for being there, seemingly? I know I'm being judgmental, but seemingly, their, their purpose for being there was to get something from the players, right? They weren't there just to, but they were there to get something from the players that I thought was even quite distracting, right? So there's those kind of people, the people who don't want to miss out on getting whatever the crowd, whatever the popular thing has to offer. Those kinds of people are in this crowd as well. I think there's another kind of crowd, you know, goer, crowd follower that's there. It's probably the person who knows he or she ought to be religious, and there's something about Jesus that is soothing or something that, about Jesus that scratches their religious itch, okay? These are the philosophers, right? The people who know that Surely there's order in the world, there's, there's something more to this, let me go hear what this guy has to say. And after all, there's a crowd there, so maybe I'll just assimilate in with them, or maybe I like the morality of this crowd. Maybe I, I think, you know what, this crowd, they, they seem to handle themselves well, they seem to be the successful business people, they seem to like be upstanding and love one another. You know, I'm just going to nudge up to them, and, uh, and you know, we'll just see what this Jesus guy uh, is all about. There's that kind of person. And really, this is the kind of person that treats Jesus like elevator music. You know elevator music, right? You get on the elevator, what is it, what is it there for? Why do they put music in the elevators? Well, it soothes you. It passes the time. But it doesn't make you dance, right? It doesn't cause you to dance. It doesn't really stir you. You're just there. You just observe. You're just there because the crowd is there. That kind of crowd, crowd follower uh, is there as well. But then you also have your true disciples. These are the people who are there because they know the Lord. God has moved in their hearts in such a way 
that they see Christ for who he is, they see him as more valuable than anything else in the world, and they cannot help but be there with him. And it is to this crowd, this group, this hodgepodge of people, and this hodgepodge of people here this morning, that Jesus offers this tough and straightforward challenge. And what he wants us to know is this, y'all. This, this is what I want you to hear today. That familiarity with Jesus and proximity to Jesus are cheap substitutes for true, costly discipleship. Okay? Familiarity with Jesus and proximity to Jesus are cheap substitutes for true, costly discipleship. So what does he have to say? What does he have to say? I think the, the main point of what Jesus has to say is this. That true disciples value Christ above everything else. So if you look at me with verse, at verse 26 again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Again, a very difficult teaching at face value, right? Jesus, come on. In Matthew 15, you confronted the Pharisees because they were not showing honor to their parents. In Matthew 5, he would say this, you shall love your neighbor, you shall love your neighbor and your enemy. Or excuse me, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Luke 6, he says this. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So what is Jesus getting at here? How can he in one breath tell us to love our enemies and then in another breath tell us to hate our own families? And I think that's what we're uh, here to discover uh, this morning. And it's a difficult saying, but I think we find resolution in, by looking at the language here. And we don't talk a lot about Greek and Hebrew uh, in this context, even though at times it's very important. And this time it certainly is. So let's, let's look first at the Greek. The, 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 the word hate here in the Greek comes from a word group called meseo in the Greek. Um, and that means little to nothing to you, probably. But what that means in this context is this. It means to love less, to esteem less, or to show less affection towards. And so if you read it again, it would say, if anyone comes to me and does not love his own father less, or esteem his own mother less, and children and brothers and so on and so on, then me, he cannot be my disciple. This is the same word that we actually see in Romans 9 when we read this tough passage. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. It's not hate in the way that we so commonly understand hate. It is a choosing of one thing over another. There's more insight found in how in understanding Hebrew idioms. Again, like this is not, hopefully this is uh, insightful for you and not just like me being a former seminary nerd um, here, but uh, how do idioms work? In our day, we use idioms all the time, right? If I go to tell you, hey, I'm all ears, what did that mean to you? I'm going to listen, okay? Does it mean I'm all in ear, that all I am is but a mass of flesh and ear canal? No, it's not. That's not what it means. If, if I explain to you that, hey, I, I washed my truck, but I had to use some elbow grease to really get it clean, 
okay? When you hear the term elbow grease, what do you assume? That I, that I worked hard. Not that literally there was grease from my elbow that I used to clean my truck. Same said with to pull someone's leg. Same said to, with this term, to give the cold shoulder. We use these, these kind of idioms all the time in sports. You know, last night, a commentator would say, LSU drove the ball down the field, okay? Now, did they really drive the ball down the field, or did they run the ball down the field? They ran the ball down the field. Or, hey, they just sacked the quarterback. What did that mean? Did that mean a group of linemen had a sack in their hands, and they went and wrapped it around the quarterback and held him down? That's not what it means. It simply means that they tackled him. And so idioms in and of themselves, just by their words, aren't as discernible as they ought to be. You've got to have context behind it. And I think we see in the Hebrew this very same idea of hatred in Genesis chapter um, 29. And so in Genesis chapter 29, verses 30 through 33, we read this. So, so Jacob, and, and you might recall the story, right? Jacob, he wanted to marry, um, he wanted to marry Rachel and um, and um, his, his father-in-law tricked him, okay? And so this is kind of where we are in the text. So Jacob went into Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for seven years. So he loved Rachel more than Leah. In verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son. Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. This is a figure of speech used to show a choice, right? You pursue one thing at the neglect of another. And I think it's important for us to understand hated because it's also important for us to understand what the nature of family is. Why is it that Jesus goes after the family here? Jesus is a family guy. The Bible is a family book. It was given to families, Hebrew families, that would be passed down and would create Christian families. The family unit was God's very own first mission strategy uh, in the world. Why is he going to on about the family here. What did family mean in this day? Well, family in this day basically meant everything. Um, if your dad was a carpenter in this day, you know what you would be raised to be? A carpenter. It would dictate your socioeconomic status. It would dictate your income potential. It would dictate your caste. It would dictate where you lived. It would dictate even the house that you lived in. Keep in mind, in this day, the goal the realistic goal of the day wasn't to have a, an acre yard with a fence that's privately fenced off. No, you, you lived with your family. So, Jesus, how can we hate the very own people that, that got us here, that keeps us here, and that we live with? Family's very, very important. How do we not choose them? But there's also something else true about family. As important as it is, Jesus knows that family is absolutely not ultimate. Family is not ultimate. How do we know this? Well, we know that family is not ultimate because family doesn't last forever, our physical family. I mean, we, we all have been there. We've all been to the funeral of a loved one. And it's a stark reminder that 
our hopes in as much joy and as much pleasure and meaning and all of these things that our family gives us, our hope cannot be in our family. Whether you are a parent here, your hope cannot be in your children. Okay? Whether you are a child here, your hope cannot be in what you hope your family or your parents will give you one day. Family doesn't last. It is not ultimate. And Jesus knows that we were created for ultimate things. And so what Jesus is challenging us to do today and what he's challenging this crowd to do is to choose him in such a way that it looks like we hate everything else that offers to give meaning in this world. But there's a third reason that I think Jesus goes after family here or uses family uh, to really um, to point us to himself and it's this, is that the, the explicit gospel will bring ruptures into families. The explicit gospel brings ruptures into families. Now, there's a couple of ways that this happens. Um, in seminary and even before, I had several friends who committed their lives to pick up and leave the comforts of wherever they live to go away from their family, to endanger themselves, their children, their wives, whomever, to go be missionaries in a foreign land so that the gospel could go forward. Sometimes the gospel brings such a rupture into your life that it would cause you to leave your physical family to go to do ultimate things, to be about proclaiming the gospel to people who are in need of it. But then there's another reality that we see in Luke chapter 21. And I think Jesus no doubt has this in mind when he's saying these things. In, verse 20, in, in chapter 21, verses 16 through 17, he says this, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. And you will be hated for my name's sake. Jesus is challenging them. Listen, don't put your hope in the things that offer to give you meaning, it won't be long before those things actually turn on you as well. Be prepared uh, for that. In the United States, we're, we're certainly inoculated from a lot of, of this. We, we grow up in, in a, and I know like decreasingly this is known as the Bible Belt, but, but many of us in the room likely, unless you're a transplant to Atlanta, grew up in a, a heavily Bible-saturated uh, area. And so um, that, that's us, and we're inoculated from a lot of persecution. But, you know, we, we support a ministry called Help the Persecuted here uh, at our church. And, and what that means is this. The, the monies that are given to our church, many of those are given to directly to missions agencies and, and, and organizations that seek to help people in need. And so that's, that's one of the things that this means. But I texted Josh Yusuf um, earlier this week and just said, hey, man, listen, I'm, I'm preaching this passage. Is there anything that comes to mind? He says, actually, yes. We actually just got an email on Monday. Josh is the executive director of this organization called Help the Persecuted, also a member here at Christ Covenant. And I just want to read this letter to you. This is, this is a letter that one of his staffers received from another on-the-ground missionary, Okay. Listen, I don't know what to say or where to begin, but briefly, there's a 38-year-old single woman who's a Muslim background believer. She's been a student at this English center, and her code name here is Elizabeth. Her, her journey began long ago as a child, and she made peace with God. 
She has faced persecution on and off by her family, especially her two brothers. They have planned to kill her, throw acid on her, etc. But all plans so far have been spoiled. I'm not going to read the whole letter, but it goes on to say that if she goes home, she will be killed. Now, this is a real-life situation that's happening, like, right now, okay? This was received on Monday, just before Christmas, when we were all celebrating Christmas together with our families. There were real devastating, terrible things happening in the world for the cause of Christ, okay? And this is one of them. If she goes home, she will be killed. He goes on to say, she's the real deal. She loves Jesus so much and has a heart to tell others. And as a matter of fact, this past year, she's been studying the Bible with other Muslims. Now, in that alone is a massive step to go and study the Bible openly with a group of Muslims is a death sentence for progressive um, Islamic culture. And so these are the kinds of things that do happen. Now for us, participation in Christianity looks like you go to Starbucks before you come to the service. You don't even have to go to Starbucks when you come to our service because you get coffee here and you come into a comfortable room And we get to sing songs that are accompanied by an awesome drummer, a great violinist, and and Matt Papa. And we get to put on our nice clothes, and we get to do all of these things. We're inoculated from what it means to be a Christian in the sense that Jesus is talking about here. And I'm not saying that I regret all of this. I'm wearing my jacket too. I am joyful in it. But the challenge that Jesus is offering to us today is have you counted the cost? When all of this is gone, what's left? When all of this is gone, when your family has turned on you, when the job lets you down, when everything else that you built your hopes on in life have let you down, are you trusting in me? In fact, you cannot trust in me. You cannot be my disciple if you trust in any of these things. These This is the hard truth that Jesus has for us today. And then I finally want to just address why he's saying this. Why he's saying this. Verse 28 of our passage. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began... To build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he can, with 10,000, be able to meet him who comes with 20,000? And if not, while, there's yet, while they are yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Uh, Luke here uses two illustrations to drive this point home further, to, to kind of expose in our hearts our propensity to give lip service to God, but actually not love him as we say. And the first illustration, as you, as you just read, was this, tower building. Now, tower building in an honor-shame culture um, it is different than it is today. If you set out to build a house or a tower or to make some kind of building plan, and you moved forward with it, and in your due diligence, you did the best you can, and the bank got behind you, but then you couldn't pay your note, what would happen? Someone else would come absorb it. You would move on with your life. 
by um, filing you know, bankruptcy or selling it or whatever, you would get out from under it and you would move on from your life largely unscathed, right? But in an honor-shame culture, when you go and you build something and you're unable to actually finish the drill, finish the job, it's humiliating. People from all over, they look at you, they laugh at you. And this is what he's saying here. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, all who see him will mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able uh, to finish. We see this in our day. We see this right next to the collective, right? I don't know all the details surrounding it, but you know there used to be a Burger King right by the collective, and it's still an undeveloped space other than what we've developed it as, which is Covenant Courtyard is what we affectionately call it the home of the spotted cow and many other things. But there were, there were some things surrounding the demolition of this building and the timing of the erection that would have gone, the building that would have gone there. And in all the, the, the juggling between the parties, it just didn't happen. And now it just looks like a mockery in a sense. We've, we've done the best we can. But it kind of just like there ought to be fries sold here and burgers sold here and money made here. And yet it's not. A man who gives lip service to the Lord and yet doesn't love him is like he who builds a tower, but there's actually no tower. The other illustration is this, warmongering. So a king who talks the talk but really can't walk the walk. And in an emergent situation, after he's threatened another principality or another king, he has to go send a delegation to ask for peace. People who don't walk the walk... Who don't walk? Who don't talk to talk? This, these are the kinds of people that Jesus is addressing here, and th- this is us because we are human, we are fallen, and there's a few reasons I think that Jesus gets at this. And I've mentioned one: we are prone as humans to give lip service to God, but actually love the world. Okay? We are prone in the crowd to give lip service to God but actually love the world. Another way of saying this is this. We are prone to love the created order rather than the creator. And so my question is this. What has Christianity cost you? What is believing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life exclusively, actually, really cost you? For some in the room, you won't even expense yourself the discipline to break open the Bible in your home. You won't expense that to yourself. You're not going to do that. You know, hate, hated by your family? Oh, no. Read your Bible? I won't expense that. For some, you just want to be a part of the crowd. Okay, there, There's a good assembly here, and um, you like... You know, kind of the energy in the room, and I like the energy in the room. I think it's great. I think we've got a lot of really great gospel-believing, Jesus-loving people here that are, that are highly attractive in their love for Jesus. And I think that's a good thing to be a part of them. But don't linger complacent, or else you know what will happen. The gospel will become elevator music to you. It'll just be the thing that allows you to scratch your religious itch, to soothe that perceived religious need that you have, and yet, you will never do anything with it. You will be that person. For some, you can't let go of a besetting sin that has plagued you for years and years and years. And you know what? Through this text, Jesus is causing, calling you to expense it, to give it up, 
It's the end of a year. It's the beginning of a new one. It's a great time to expense these things for the gospel of Christ. Out of love, out of our love for Jesus to say yes to him and to say no to the things that seek to offer the hope that we find in him. Expense those things. Don't hang on to them anymore. Count the cost. So we're prone to give lip service to God, but not actually love, but we actually love the world. Secondly, we're prone to thinking that Jesus is okay with casual familiarity. Okay? We are prone to thinking that Jesus is okay with casual familiarity. This is another reason why he comes at us with this text. And you know what? I think this is something that's particularly dangerous for us. And I know we live in a culture, like I mentioned earlier, that many consider to be post-Christian. And I definitely agree with that that term. I, I definitely think that we have kind of moved into a, especially in the cities, in, into a worldview mindset that is post-Christian. However, I think that it's our children that will really be the ones who have to face this. Uh, we do face it, but we've already been raised, right? Uh, but it's our children who will be the ones who have to live in the face of this post-Christian mindset. So for many of us actually in the room, we're Bible belters. We're people who grew up in church. And we're people who, who at least in a nominal sense had Christianity somewhere in the home. Whether it's your parents were true believers and they tried to shepherd you the best they could as such. Or they knew they ought to be and they had a Bible in the home and that created within us a kind of casual familiarity with Jesus that isn't representative of what Luke is putting down here. We're da- we're, we are in the danger zone uh, of this because there is grave danger. There's tragic danger in confusing familiarity and true saving faith. And this is one of the things I teach our students all the time. You know, we, we have a student ministry here. It is small uh, because it, for a lot of different factors, we pray that it grows. We pray that we'll have more people engaged. We pray that we'll have more relationships in the cities. But the, the students who come to our uh, group right now are students who have parents who are just faithful believers. And my challenge to them is this. Don't let the faith of your parents become familiarity with Jesus for you in such a way that you fail to actually trust in Jesus in the way that he demands. Faith is costly. Familiarity is cheap. Familiarity looks like building a tower, and then there's actually no tower. Familiarity looks like you're readying yourself for war, but in reality, you actually can't imagine putting your life on the line. The third reason that I think Jesus has this message for us today is this, that we are tempted to change or lower the expectations on what Christianity actually is. And there's this massive hodgepodge of culture and Bible and how our nation got its history and founding and, and how early, early missionaries came to our land and, and pilgrims and all of these things that passed down this, this, this kind of situation whereby we are or have been influenced in our laws by um, a Christian worldview somewhere back there, okay? We, we have this as the product of our society uh, today. And our churches, a lot of times, appeal to the lowest common denominator in Christianity, okay? 
they build their whole services, they build their whole ministry around the lowest common denominator Christianity, the, the easiest pathway of resistance, the easiest point of access Christianity um, that is not representative of what Jesus talks about in the, in the Bible as being true discipleship. True discipleship is not coming and consuming a sermon. True discipleship is not coming and consuming from the relationships in the room. True discipleship is going and sacrificing for your neighbors that they may know Christ. True discipleship is following Jesus and loving him so much so that the outpouring of your faith looks like working in the children's area at Christ's covenant. True discipleship is actionable. True discipleship is not consumeristic. True disciples and true discipleship contributes. It contributes. And I think just kind of the final point here uh, of this passage, the thing I really want to mention is this, that, that Jesus here is not offering a Christianity that is for super Christians, okay? He's not saying, hey, if you want to be a super Christian disciple, there's not like a Christian and then a disciple category in the Bible, okay? There's just disciples, right? And and he's addressing what it means to just merely be a disciple or what it means to merely be a Christian. In fact, the word disciple is used in the Gospels and in Acts to describe a Christian 264 times. This is the most popular term that Jesus has for us. And in verse 33, he says this. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Keep in mind, the crowds are billowing. The crowds are coming. And Jesus comes and he speaks hard truth to them. If you do not renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. This is his message to all of us today, and no doubt, no matter where you are in your journey, maybe you are a person who's curious about Jesus, or something about Jesus soothes your religious, um, your religious sensibilities, or scratches your religious itch. Maybe that is you. Jesus is calling you to more today. Hope is not found in anything except the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not found in your jobs. It's not found in meaning. Or, or in your, your family, the meaning that your family may offer you, it is only found in Christ. Because in eternity, it really won't matter who your parents are. In eternity, it will not matter what you did vocationally. It won't matter what your asset accumulation looked like. What will matter is, did you have faith in Christ? That's what will matter. And Jesus, I think, one of the, the, the special things about this text is that Jesus is beyond qualified to say what he's saying to us. He's, he's, he's giving us very hard truths. He's giving us very high demands for what it means to be a disciple. And yet, Jesus knows that he would be one who would be hated by his own father at the cross. And why? He was hated so that you can be loved. God in his sovereignty sent his son, Christ, to be hated, to be scorned, to be despised, to be stricken, so that you and I can be loved by God. And that is our hope here uh, this morning. And so as we look ahead to this new year, 
may, may we take Jason's advice earlier and, and set new discipleship goals for ourselves. May we be people who take discipleship seriously and really evaluate our own hearts and lives to see where we're placing our hope in the world. And may it be in Christ. And then may we develop patterns uh, that, that calls us to love him more and reject the things of the world. I'm going to pray for us. And then Matt's going to come up and lead us in song. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to explain this passage. I pray that uh, in my explanation of it and preaching of it, that, that uh, you pricked hearts and that uh, you would cause it to fall on, on hearts and minds that, that seek to know you, that seek to be known by you, that seek to find the rest, the joy, the peace, the hope that can be found in you and you alone. And Lord, may we as a church family point one another more diligently uh, to the fact that Christ is all that we need. Um, Christ is all that we have at the end of the day. And Lord, we pray that we'd worship you well. In Jesus' name, amen.